0: Well, to be with you this afternoon. Friends, do please keep Mark's Gospel open in front of you, either physically or virtually, and let me pray for us as we open up God's Word and expect him to speak. Let's pray again. Father, thank you that as we gather this afternoon, we can be confident that you are a speaking God. And please, we pray you would speak and we would listen this afternoon. Thank you that you want to communicate with us. Give us open hearts and minds. To hear and believe we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's play a bit of a word association game as we start this afternoon. I'll say a word, and then you think of another word in your mind that connects with it in some way, and we'll see where we go. So first word, COVID. Anyone want to give us the word that they were thinking about? COVID, what word comes to mind? Safety. Okay, great, fantastic. Good, there's three excellent options. Second word, autumn. Thank you. These are colours. Well, very poetic. Thank you. Third and final one. Kenilworth. That's too much. You can't have that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Okay. Fantastic. Great. Good. Well, if I was to say the word Jerusalem, I wonder what words you'd connect it with. Would you connect it with words like arrest, betrayal, mockery, trial, Shame. Death. Well, if we've been paying attention in Mark chapter 10, we should do. You see, Jesus is deliberately heading to Jerusalem, the ancient capital of Israel, the centre of religious and political power. Mark 10, 32. They were on their way to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. See, Jesus is fully aware of what is on the cards for him in Jerusalem. And yet he resolutely steps up on his journey to the city where he will soon be killed. And in the next few chapters of Mark's Gospel, we're going to see the events unfold that bring those predictions to reality. The human trigger for Jesus' arrest and execution is his showdown with the religious establishment of his day. It's like a heavyweight contest, just way more important than Dionte Wilder and Tyson Fury. In the red corner, there's Jesus, the itinerant preacher from Nazareth, who's repeatedly upset the religious elite by refusing to fit their mould and by challenging their positions of power. But Jesus isn't a religious maverick. He is God's Messiah, Israel's King, the one those religious leaders should have been looking for. And in the blue corner, there are the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, the powerful and influential and respected. And in Mark chapters 11 to 13, Jesus is going to expose the religious hypocrisy amongst this powerful elite. He's going to reveal how God will give the positions of leadership within his new covenant people, the church, the true Israel, to others. He's going to warn them of a coming judgment that hangs over the religious establishment and indeed the whole Jewish nation. A judgment which fell historically in AD 70 when the Romans trashed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It's going to be a clash of titans. And actually, we see that happening already in today's passage. Jesus' actions lead to a situation where, look down at verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Wow, that's pretty explosive, isn't it? What on earth does Jesus do and say that is so offensive to the religious elite that they set in motion as a plan to murder him? Well, simply as we'll see, he acts as God's king. It all kicks off when King Jesus enters Jerusalem, treads on the turf of his opponents, enters their territory, and challenges their authority. See, Jesus is the true king, the the true leader of God's people. And this afternoon we're going to see two particular aspects about his kinship that provoked his opponents then and might provoke us today too. See, he is still the king. After all. So let's humble our hearts and let Jesus explain what sort of king he is to us this afternoon. Let's recognise his authority and be one again as we consider these things to follow him, to submit to him and to delight in him. So King Jesus here is on the front foot. And the first dimension of his kingship we need to think about this afternoon is the fact that Jesus is the king who saves. Jesus is the king who who saves? That's particularly what we're being taught by the entry into Jerusalem in the first 11 verses. See, there is no doubt, is there, that Jesus is king here. He acts with kingly authority. He gives commands to two of his disciples about how they're to go and get a colt for him to ride on into Jerusalem. See, just like people with authority today, Jesus' words have weight behind them. And people act on them. He sends two of his followers on this mission. He gives them clear instructions about what they're to do. And it's the fact that Jesus needs the cult. That's reason enough for the owners to let it go. See, there's something about Jesus that people recognise. They instinctively respond to his authority, don't they? Look at verse 6. When the disciples are asked what they're doing, they answered as Jesus had told them to. The people let them go. It's kind of like a mic drop moment. Jesus has said it. He needs the call. End of discussion. See, Jesus is in charge of these events, acting as the king with authority, orchestrating the events surrounding his approach to Jerusalem. But let's be honest. We do get a lot of detail, don't we, about the cult. We're told where it is. We're told that no one's ever ridden it before. We're told the details of the conversation that need to happen so the cult can be released. Twice. That's almost too much detail, isn't it? Mark is focusing in on the cult. Why? Why give us this level of detail? Well, because Mark wants our Old Testament alarm bells to be ringing loudly at this point. Let me read you some prophetic words from the Old Testament, spoken many years before, that are recorded in the book of Zechariah. This is what Zechariah's prophecy says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Old Testament bells are meant to be ringing. It's all lining up. The Old Testament outline is being coloured in by Jesus. You get the right character. Your king comes in Zechariah. While the people speak about the coming kingdom in verse 10. You get Jesus approaching the right place. Zion, Jerusalem in Zechariah. And as chapter opens in Mark 11, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. You get Jesus on the right animal. He's riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. They bring this colt to him and he sits on it. Verse 7 of Mark chapter 11. You get the right response. Rejoice. Shout. And we read in verse 9 that those who went ahead and those who followed Jesus shouted. You see the Old Testament picture and the New Testament fulfilment overlap perfectly. Zechariah's prophecy looked forward to a coming king who would be triumphant, but would also come in humility to save. And Mark wants us to see that this prophecy is being fulfilled right before our eyes as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Jesus is the king, predicted by Zechariah, the conquering ruler, yet also one who comes in lowliness and humility to save. Jesus is the King who saves. That makes sense of what we've been seeing so far in Mark's Gospel. We've seen a number of times this claim that Jesus is the Messiah, or the Christ, the long-promised rescuer King. And we're in no doubt, he's going to triumph, he's going to conquer, he will be exalted. And yet he will do this by walking the path of lowly, humble service all the way to the cross where he lays down his life for his people. Just a few verses earlier in Mark's Gospel Jesus has spoken of his mission as the Son of Man in these terms. Mark 10, 45 Even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is the King who saves. You see, he... he, 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 he enters Jerusalem, but he doesn't immediately blitz the occupying Roman forces or, or, or destroy his enemies or, or set up his kingdom in, in spectacular power. In fact, there's something of a bit of a sense of anti-climax here, isn't it? if we're being honest, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's kind of like an orchestra belting out a big fanfare to signal the arrival of a dignitary, and then nothing. You see, despite the popular acclaim of the crowd, their adoration is fickle and short lived. Look at what happens in verse 11, the climax of the day. Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's it. That's the end of the day. Big deal. But that's because there is more for Jesus to do. He, he, he is the king, but he's the king who is soon to be betrayed. To be arrested and executed by the political religious powers. That is the way his rule will be established. That is the way his kingdom will come. That is the way he will save. See, Jesus is the king who saves. I wonder if that provokes some of us today... Jesus is the king. And I am persuaded that that is good news for our hearts this afternoon. But we might not initially hear it like that today. You see, in our cultural moment, we're quite suspicious about power, aren't we? And with good reason. Plenty of people have abused positions of power. The awful events surrounding Sarah Eberoth's horrific murder have reminded us and put those issues firmly on our cultural map. See, We're used to hearing stories about people who exploit their positions of authority to hurt or, or to harm or to oppress. Our evangelical church culture has been shocked recently by claims of abusive and coercive power that's greatly damaged the cause of Christ and the, the name of our Saviour. And so we're right to take a good, hard look at our own church culture, to make sure that those who have power use it wisely and well. But that is because of who Jesus is, the one with supreme power and authority, but one who doesn't throw that power around in an abusive or exploitative or domineering way. See, he comes as the king, but he comes in humility, in lowliness and service. He has power, but he uses that power for the good of others. He comes not to oppress, but to serve. He doesn't demand his way. He gives his life as a ransom for many. And if you're not yet following Jesus here this afternoon, can I honestly urge you to reflect on how refreshingly different Jesus is from others around us? Or maybe from our own expectations of what he should be like? You see, he's like a breath of fresh air on a hot, stifling day. He has real authority. We should bow before him and adore him and submit to him. We must do that. But he doesn't throw his weight around in an aggressive or abusive way. see, putting our lives into his hands, surrendering to him, will never harm us. It will never open us up to exploitation putting our lives in his hands will elevate us and humanise us in deep and profound ways. He comes to serve us through suffering and dying for our sins and bringing us the forgiveness that we desperately need. There is much to be gained in following Jesus. And you can be sure Jesus will never use his power to crush you, or to oppress you, or to exploit you. No, he uses power to serve because he is the king who saves. Jesus is the king who saves. That's the first dimension of Jesus' kingship we're meant to reflect on this afternoon. He is the king who saves. Secondly though, in the second half of the chapter, verses 12 to 25, Jesus is the king who announces coming judgment. He is the king who announces coming judgment. You see, he's saved, but that salvation only makes sense against the background of coming judgment. You see, you don't need to be saved if you're safe. You need to be saved if you're in danger. And these verses contain one of Mark's famous sandwiches, which appear all over his gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, Mark often starts off telling us about something. Think of that as like the first piece of bread in a sandwich. And then he breaks off to tell us about something else. Think of that as like the filling in the sandwich. Before returning back to the initial incident to tie things up. That's the second bit of bread in the sandwich. And just like in any good sandwich, it's the filling that's the really important bit. Which makes sense of the bread being there. So let's have a look at that. You see in verses 12 to 14... We get Jesus cursing an unfruitful fig tree. Think of that as the first piece of bread. And on the next day, he and his disciples pass by the same fig tree and discuss it. Verses 20 to 25. Think of that like as the second piece of bread. And it's what happens between those two incidents in the filling that helps us make sense of what's going on. So what is the filling? What happens in the central section in the sandwich? That's a very hard phrase to say I just room. the central section of the sandwich. Well, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And in a deliberately provocative action, he returns to the temple. And let's pick up what happens. Verse 15. Jesus began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, when Jesus arrives at the focal point of Judaism, the temple in Jerusalem, he finds it wanting. He's provoked by what he sees and takes drastic action to stop those who are abusing the temple for their own ends. He interferes with the commercialism that's infecting Israel's worship of the true God. But what is even more serious is the charge Jesus brings against the temple and the Jewish religious leaders associated with the temple. When he quotes the Old Testament, verse 17, here's the punchline. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." What's going on here? Well, Jesus is criticising the temple and the religious establishment it represents, because it and they are not what they were supposed to be. You see, the plan was that the nations would stream to Jerusalem. They would identify with Yahweh, the true God of Israel, the true God of the Bible. That they would be attracted by the godly, upright and fruitful lifestyle they were to see in the people of Israel. Think of Israel as like a big magnet, meant to be drawing the nations in, with that kind of irresistible force and pull. But that's not happening. The temple should have been a house of prayer for all nations, streaming into Jerusalem as they see the people of God glorifying God. But something different is going on. And that is because of the spiritual compromise and hypocrisy that Jesus finds in the temple. He calls it, quote, den of robbers. Now, we might not initially know what he means there, that's fair enough. But if you look down at the footnote in your Bible, you'll see it's a quote from the Old Testament, a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. And when the Gospels quote the Old Testament, think of it like a hyperlink on a webpage. We're meant to click on it so that we open up Jeremiah chapter 7 in our minds, or whatever the chapter in the Bible is. It's see, in Jeremiah 7, God, through the prophet, reminds Israel that they cannot rely simply on having the temple in the city if they don't take God seriously. They can't presume God will not judge them simply because of the physical structure in that in the, the temple is there. In fact, in Jeremiah 7, God knows the people are just going through the motions, clocking into the temple to keep God happy. Without living with any thought or regard for him or for the good of others or for justice in the people of God, In Jeremiah 7, the people are guilty of compromise and hypocrisy and judgment on the temple is coming. And it is exactly the same in Jesus' day. Different time. Same problem. A temple is a den of robbers. But Jesus isn't just exposing a present problem, he is also warning of a coming judgment. Because as we'll see in the coming weeks, particularly in Mark chapter 13, Jesus predicts judgment is coming on the temple. It will soon be destroyed as an expression of God's just anger at the compromise and hypocrisy of the Jewish religious establishment. That takes us back to the bread in the sandwich. Remember where it began and ended, the cursing of the fig tree and the discussion about it. You see, the fig tree is a symbol for the Jewish nation, which ultimately is as fruitless as the tree that Jesus curses. Disobedient to God, not living up to the calling he's given them. That's a hard message. That's a stern rebuke. It's a blunt action. It's shocking in many ways. Jesus the King enters Jerusalem and announces the judgment is coming. And the coming historical judgment on Jerusalem, on the temple, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, is a foretaste of the future judgment which is coming on the whole world. It's a picture, it's a microcosm of final judgment, early, uh, uh, ahead of things, on the stage of human history. You see, one day King Jesus will return for full and final judgment. He will come, as Mark 8.38 promises, in his Father's glory with his holy angels. He will come to call the whole world to account, to judge evil, and to examine all our lives with his holy gaze. The coming will be unexpected and sudden, But it is sure and certain. And our only hope to pass through that judgment safely is to make peace with the judge. To let him deal with our sin now, which otherwise will merit God's righteous judgment then. And I know that might sound harsh and difficult this afternoon. But I want to persuade us that it is a good thing for Jesus one day to judge the world. Think about how angry or provoked you are when you hear of some great evil. People trafficking, terror attacks, child exploitation, systemic racism or sexism, abuse of the weak, rampant greed, arrogance. We want those guilty of those things to to be brought to justice. That's a good desire, isn't it? Well if we, in a small way, rightly yearn for justice, for an end to those evils that scar God's good world, how good it is to know this afternoon that Jesus will one day secure perfect and lasting and visible justice in this world. He will call all to account for evil done and injustices carried out. Although it's counterintuitive, it's counterintuitive. It is good news that Jesus is the king who announces coming judgment. But of course, we're implicated in that too, though, aren't we? See, we tend to think of everyone else as bad and ourselves as good. So maybe we're even happy for Jesus to judge others, the bad people. But we're less comfortable thinking about Jesus judging us. But as the Russian writer Solzhenitsyn once wrote, as he was reflecting on the impossibility of splitting the world into good and bad people, he said this If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line, uh, the line rather, dividing good and evil, cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Your heart and my heart. This means that all the talk about judgement gets personal this afternoon, because we've all acted in selfish, evil and dishonourable ways. We've all hurt others to one degree or another, pushed God to the edges of our lives, sought to make our way in his world without thought for him. We're actually guilty before him and facing judgment. The line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Our only hope is to look to King Jesus to forgive us. To rescue us from the coming judgment, confident that he will because of what he's achieved in his life and death and resurrection. You see, it is precisely because judgment is coming that Jesus arrives ahead of that judgment to provide a way for rescue for all who turn to him, you and me included. So Jesus is the king who announces a coming judgment and gloriously the one who provides a way through that judgment too. So here is King Jesus entering Jerusalem, the king who comes to save, the king who comes to announce judgment. Imagine hearing these words for the first time and seeing these things before your eyes, Put yourselves, if you can, in the sandals of the disciples for a moment. And you can imagine their questions, can't you? If God's judgment is going to fall on the temple in Jerusalem, then can we still draw near to God because the temple was where you found God's presence? Will we still be able to pray because the temple was where you went and and prayed? Can we still be forgiven because the temple was the place of sacrifice for sin? Yes, Jesus assures his followers then and his followers today They can still draw near to God through Jesus, the the true temple, the, the true meeting place between God and man. And so can we. They can still pray and receive amazing answers to prayer, as verse 24 says. And so can we. They can still be forgiven, provided they forgive others, as verse 25 says. And so can we. But only if they and we have faith. Did you spot them? the last three verses, faith occurs in verse 22, have faith in God. That same idea in language there, verse 23 talks about someone who believes. And again in verse 24, someone who believes. Believe faith, believe. You see, that's the response we're summoned to as we finish this afternoon. To rely on our King. To believe his salvation. And to trust his judgment. Let's not be provoked by King Jesus today. Let's humble our hearts and believe in him. Why don't we take a moment of quiet in our hearts just to respond to King Jesus this afternoon. And then I'll pray. But a moment of quiet first to respond to for King Jesus again this afternoon. We acknowledge him as the King who comes to save. Thank you, God, that he has great power. He comes in humility to serve and not to be served. Thank you for that service which took him all the way to the cross where he gave his life as a ransom for many. Thank you that he comes to save. May we personally respond to that, rejoice in that, and experience that afresh this afternoon. I thank you that Jesus is the King who comes to announce judgement. Father, we confess we wouldn't instinctively want to think about these issues or find them palatable unless um, your word caused us to examine them. And thank you for what we see here of the reality of your coming judgement in history then, but more globally in light of what will happen when your son returns. Help us to take that thought seriously not to just instinctively dismiss it or be provoked unhelpfully by it but help us to work that through to to, to wrestle with that truth to, to embrace that reality. Not in a fearful, crushing way but in a way that deepens our gratitude for the great salvation that our King has won for us. Which brings us uh, freedom from that threat of judgment, joy as we long for Christ's coming rather than uh, terror and uncertainty. Thank you that one day Jesus will return. Thank you that one day wrongs and brokenness in this world will alleviated. Thank you that there is a new heaven and a new earth you for the prospect and hope of peace and glory and righteousness beyond judgment for all who trust Christ today. Help us to, as Jesus says, "there have faith in God." We ask, Father, teach us these things, press them home to our hearts. We ask that this word will be fruitful for us, beneficial for us, and good in the days to come. We ask for His glory. Amen.